0: Our scripture passage this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. The passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we definitely encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the blue Bibles in the basket in front of you. I looked up the page number, then totally forgot. I think it's 898. If it's not that, then you can find it, I'm sure. Uh, But try 898 and see where that gets you in the blue Bibles. Uh, This is the most commented upon passage, not just these first 12 verses of Matthew 5, but Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, most commented upon passage of the Bible and the history of the church. There is so much content, so much material. That's intriguing, right? People have a lot to say about this, and we have even more to say about it, I suppose, uh, starting this morning. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge once again that there are plenty of people in this room right now who are mourning, who are suffering very greatly and around our state. I, I bet almost everybody here has some connection with the, the awfulness that we've been making our way through the past few days, and so I do pray particularly for them for, for peace and comfort in the midst of their mourning, and I pray for sensitive and wise action from our church family accordingly in the coming weeks and months. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, grant us ears to hear, and also hearts that might be absolutely transformed by what we're hearing so that we can leave here and be very different people. This is not the easiest couple of chapters to understand, certainly not to apply, and so we need your help. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, how do we live well in this world? How do we live well in this world? If we Hold the room right now, I'm sure we'd get an assortment of responses, although hopefully not too many responses. I've always been outdoors-oriented, and the past few years have been a touch stressful. I'm sure all of you can relate. So at times, I've got to be honest, I have been tempted to conclude that the secret to living well involves moving my family into the mountains preferably near a lake, and then we would, in my mind, we would hike a lot, or if that's too strenuous, we would spend our afternoons skipping rocks and admiring the landscape. But then I read this bit from Kurt Steiner, really about Kurt Steiner, who is a professional stone skipper who once skipped a stone 88 times in 2013. So this is a little bit here about Kurt Steiner from Outside Magazine. Skipping has brought Steiner respite from a life of depression and other forms of mental illness. Off to a good start. However, it has also, in part, left him broke, divorced, and since the death of his greatest rival, adrift from his stone-skipping peers. Now in middle age, with a growing list of aches and pains, he must contemplate the reality that in his most truthful moments, he throws rocks not simply because he wants to, but because he has no choice. So stone skipping is out, it seems, right? At least as a means of trying to live well in this world. This guy tried it and it's not working out so well. It looks promising, but it's flawed. And so it goes for all sorts of ways, of trying to live well in this world. They're, they're promising, but they're flawed. They they overpromise and then they keep under-delivering. But I have some truly excellent news. There is a way of living well in this world. It's the way that Jesus teaches us in scintillating detail here in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, thanks to Augustine's decision to call it that, all the way back in 393 A.D. Six weeks ago, in our fall launch, when we were doing our fall launch Sunday at the beginning of the semester, we said, as Tyler alluded to, that our theme for this year is transformation, emphasizing that being a disciple involves a lifelong journey in which we become more and more like Jesus. Yes, there's a point at which we are called when we begin to follow Jesus. That's what we often talk about as conversion. But then as we follow Jesus, he actually reorients us missionally and morally, in large part by giving us new affections for himself and new affections for the people around us that are created in the image of God. Thus, the moral reorientation that we find And Matthew chapters 5-7, through Jesus' most extensive teaching recorded for us in Scripture on what we might call his kingdom values. If you're looking for a little bit on Jesus' kingdom values, well, here you go. So first, the disciples are called by Jesus and given a new mission to follow him and ultimately be made into fishers of men. You can see that in Matthew chapter 4. And then... Jesus teaches them how to live. The disciples were Jesus' primary sermon audience, although, as we'll see, there were crowds of additional people who apparently were hearing what he was saying. So they're called, and then Jesus shows them how to live in this world. And then Jesus actually ends up sending his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 to make more disciples once they've experienced a certain amount of transformation and better understand what it means for people to be a part of God's kingdom family. It's awfully difficult to call other people into something you haven't personally experienced and don't understand. You didn't think that that book outlines could preach, but we we are absolutely cooking right now as we consider the implications of where the Sermon on the Mount is situated in the book of Matthew. The sermon is... Is post call signaling to us that the values and the exhortations contained in this sermon are mainly for those who are a part of God's kingdom family and experiencing its power. They make sense specifically within the grand story of redemption that frames the kingdom's existence and purpose, and they make sense within a kingdom in which the citizens of the kingdom are experiencing God's transformational power. Without the narrative, without the grand story, many of these values in the Sermon on the Mount will seem foolish, possibly even harmful. And without kingdom power, these values and exhortations are not much more than a pipe tree. You need a story, and you need a power. Otherwise, this makes no sense. And remember, this is really, really important. These values and exhortations are given to us by the same Jesus who invites us in Matthew chapter 11 to come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the Jesus that's telling us about these values. And that's Jesus' posture toward his people which means, get this, that this sermon is actually an invitation into a way of living that is ultimately restful and helps us thrive. Some parts of this sermon will be very difficult for us to hear and process, depending somewhat on our individual strengths and weaknesses and our, and our personalities. C.S. Lewis had a particularly frank analysis of this, writing that if caring for the sermon means liking it or enjoying it, I suppose that no one really cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? But even the difficult parts are ultimately graces from Jesus, who is totally disinterested in heavy-handed moralism along the lines of, you know, hey, if, if you guys, if you want to be my, my disciples, you better get your act together. You better you know, kind of look the park here. You better look presentable. You better wear your T-shirt. We want to be a team. Jesus is disinterested in that kind of stuff. He's reorienting us, and he's exhorting us for our benefit that we might live well in this world and be a blessing to those around us. This morning we're going to take a look at the first part of Jesus' sermon, the so-called Beatitudes, in verses 3 through 12, based on the repetition of the Greek word commonly translated blessed in our English Bibles, which is one of the definitions of the Latin word beatis. Sit in a dark room, sort that out on your own time. But that's what's going on. We'll make our way into the Beatitudes, really just the first three Beatitudes this morning, we'll make our way into the Beatitudes by considering the following two reflections. Number one, living well is not what you think. And then number two, living well is knowing the story. It's not what you think, and it's knowing the story. Let's start with that first reflection. Living well is not exactly what you might think. The first verse of chapter 5, sets the scene for this sermon, which takes place on an unspecified mountain since curious crowds had begun to hang around Jesus as he established his public ministry. After Jesus was baptized by John and then tempted in the wilderness by Satan, Jesus ministered in Galilee saying, here's here's Jesus' message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then after calling his first disciples, he taught in the synagogues and now I'm reading Matthew chapter 4 verses 23 through 25. He taught in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics and He healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is dramatic stuff going on here. So Jesus, desiring to do some teaching, but being mindful of these kinds of crowds that had been forming wherever he goes, he found a mountain, now we're we're thinking more like a, a ridge, Maybe a, a hilly plateau, no offense to this mountain, but that's what we should have in our mind's eye. So he found a mountain where he could sit down and speak. To whom? Primarily the disciples who came to him, whom Jesus had called, verse 1. But also to the crowds in earshot of Jesus, who at the end of the sermon, Chapter 7, verses 28 through 29, were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Which brings us right back to the mountain. The Old Testament narrative, I've loved this. I love Colorado. I love mountains. The Old Testament narrative is full of. Of mountains. You could do a biblical theology of mountains. I kid you not. Maybe we will do that at some point during the series. And these mountains you find in the Old Testament narrative are regularly associated with divine revelation. Israel's encounter with God at Mount Sinai stands out, especially Moses' ascension of Mount Sinai to meet with God. Now, near the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus himself ascends a mountain, a detail that that Matthew clearly, intentionally includes to let it be known that the sermon we're about to experience is divine revelation. Another Moses is here, a a better Moses. So the Sermon on the Mount is bookended by allusions divine authority, implied here by Matthew in the sermon's introductory verse, and then explicitly named by the crowds in the sermon's final verse. Do you see this? He ascends a mountain. authority, last verse. This guy has authority. This isn't some dude that's talking to us. And you know what that means? What it means is this content isn't just some content for your inspirational calendar. This is, this is the real deal here in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's directly related to the divine revelation that preceded it. This is the next chapter in the story. Verse 2, as Jesus sat down, he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, verses 3 through 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, this is wild. I mean, is it not? You can see why this passage has been commented upon so much. Why in the world is Jesus speaking positively about people who are poor in spirit, mourning, and meek? Aren't those disadvantageous, undesirable estates? Aren't we hoping to be, you know, strong in spirit, in in celebrating, and assertive, especially in our individualistic age? What is going on here? Well, the Greek word makarios, which the plural form of which is usually translated blessed, in most English Bibles, you'll sometimes see it glossed happy. It's that word is actually very difficult to translate because an equivalent English word, doesn't really exist. The best sense of the word in the New Testament, especially in the context of this sermon, is something like like living well or, or flourishing. Jonathan Pennington spells out an argument for this very helpfully in great detail in his book, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, which happens to be the book I would recommend. The most if you're looking to acquire a book for personal study as we make our way through this series. I know all of you are itching to do exactly that. You're going to run right out of here and you're going to get a book for personal study. Praise God. So the poor in spirit are flourishing? Those who are mourning are living well? I mean... Blessed are those who put quarters into a vending machine and hit the button and nothing happens? Is that, is that what we're saying? It, blessed are those who have soap on their hands and they can't get the automatic water thing in the sink to work? It's wild. Well, yes, that is basically what we're saying. These folks described in these first three Beatitudes are living well, Because instead of worrying about their estate, these people who are poor in spirit and mourning and meek are faithfully entrusting themselves to the Lord and walking with him in obedience instead of being unduly concerned about their external circumstances. Sally Lloyd-Jones has defined worrying as thinking we know better than God how something should go. And the folks described here in these first three Beatitudes are doing the opposite. They are leaning into God concerning how things are going. They're living well because they're getting on board with God's way of doing things, even though their earthly circumstances are not all that desirable. Does this mean that they're spending zero energy on improving their circumstances? No. That's definitely not what this means. It's just not where their hope is. And it's not their primary focus. And if you've ever mourned before, and a lot of you are experiencing that right now, you know that it's not something that you can just improve overnight. You can't just, you know, fix it. So better to entrust yourself to the Lord, even in the midst of your mourning even in the midst of your overwhelming sadness. Now let's crank things up yet another notch. Jesus was addressing the poor in spirit. He was addressing those who mourn and those who are meek. Because number one, he recognized that those kinds of folks were out there in spades, in very large numbers. He knew the audience he was preaching to. And then number two, Jesus was signaling that disciples of Jesus should expect these kinds of disadvantageous experiences on the regular. Followers of Jesus will experience suffering in this world just like everybody else. Plus, walking in step with Jesus will always mean walking out of step with social norms in certain ways, and that out of stepness will be difficult. Welcome to messianic preaching. <laughs> this is the nature of messianic preaching. Suffering people, you are living well. It is completely upside down in our eyes, but that is normative for kingdom, for kingdom things and kingdom ways. God's ways are not our ways, but they are better ways if we're willing to make our way into the blender of personal transformation. In his book, The Pursuit of Happiness, survey pink airs, compares the Beatitudes to a plow carving out a field. In the same way, the word of the Beatitudes penetrates us with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to break up our interior soil. It cuts through us with the sharp edge of trials and with the struggles it provokes. It overturns our ideas and projects, reverses the obvious, thwarts our desires, and bewilders us, leaving us poor and naked before God. All this in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of Of new life. Certainly life works best when we walk in step with the Lord's way of doing things. And the Proverbs speak directly to this. Consider the wisdom of Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. And then later the Proverbs speaks. That same Proverbs speaks of our barns being filled with plenty when we honor the Lord with our wealth. Our lives and our world work best when we and everyone else live like the Creator tells us to live. We get straight paths and we get barns that would make a rich farmer jealous. But in this world, we will still have plenty of trouble, Jesus says, because there's sin in the world which affects everything about the world. Even when we live faithfully, other people won't live faithfully, which will affect us. And oh, by the way, we won't always live faithfully either. So living well isn't quite what we think. Now is it? It's far and away, this way that Jesus is talking about, it's far and away the wisest way to live. And of course, of course those in, in the kingdom family are morally compelled to live this way but it's often very, very hard. For many of us, there will be seasons in which we are poor in spirit, when we feel like we're in the low places in society. And sometimes that will be a lot more than a season. And consider that the lower class was huge in Jesus' day. The estimates vary a little bit, but somewhere around 70%. There will be seasons of mourning, Seemingly, a, a broad reference here to seasons of, of suffering due to, to various possible causes. We will live with a, a meek, probably best translated humble posture, which, you know, isn't necessarily the most effective way to get on top or gain power or accumulate wealth. That's not what you're going to see in the books. At times, we might even feel like we're getting walked upon by those who aren't as interested in prioritizing the needs of other people, in deferring to the Lord Almighty. And yet, we're living well. According to Jesus, we're living wisely. This has got to be a balm for those of us here with with difficult lives, who who feel like we are struggling, or or maybe even in this, this pit, Yes, this kind of logic, it's kind of upside down to us. Yes, it even feels a little bit ironic. But it is encouraging news to those of us who are following Jesus and find the journey to be a little bit complicated, to say the least. It doesn't mean that our earthly circumstances will change overnight. They might not ever change. But in the Beatitudes, Disciples of Jesus, and I mean this so seriously and so importantly, in the Beatitudes, disciples of Jesus should feel seen by the Lord and experience His presence. If you are here this morning and you are poor in spirit, if you are mourning, if you feel particularly humble, you are seen by Jesus. Experience the presence of Jesus as He preaches, not only to them, but to you. And those who are listening in, maybe you would not say that you're a follower of Jesus, or just kind of here, you would identify more with the crowds that were an earshot of Jesus. Understand that following Jesus, if you should make that choice, it's an invitation to a flourishing life, yes. It's just that Jesus' definition of earthly flourishing is very different from our own. And this is why Prosperity theology, to quote my three-year-old daughter, makes me want to puke. And I, I'm to be clear here, I'm quoting the puke part, not her theological commentary. Those who argue that following Jesus catalyzes material blessings. Sometimes, by the way, arguing for this by twisting the Beatitudes from the passage that I'm preaching from right now, among other passages, those who are arguing that kind of thing are putting a foot on the chest of those who are already hurting, and they are misleading people who are listening in, who are thinking about following Jesus. Prosperity theology crushes hurting people because it inevitably fails to deliver the goods and it causes already hurting people To think that maybe their sin or some sort of unfaithfulness is keeping them from God's blessings. And those who decide to follow Jesus because of this kind of prosperity theology, because they're being told that it will bring material blessings, they're being deceived and they're on their way to experiencing spiritual disappointment and harm when the blessings don't live up to the billing. End of aside but can we really trust god's way of doing things can we really trust god's way of doing things can we really get on board with this i mean these are nice sentiments chipper i mean but i mean hopefully there's more to it than this you're like trust jesus you know it's it's upside down but it's you know and that brings us to our second reflection living well is knowing the story much more briefly here church the beatitudes make sense as we mentioned earlier Because they're part of a story. A story that happens to be about the guy sitting on the mountain. A guy who, although fully God, came to earth and took on human flesh, that he might establish God's kingdom. And that's why he goes around preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, because he's there. We might say that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom when he came, and then he will fully consummate the kingdom when Jesus returns, or return guaranteed when Jesus eventually died on the cross. Keep reading the book of Matthew for more on this. And then triumphantly rose again from the dead and ascended into the presence of the Father. Presence helps me think very clearly about the nature of this, this already, but, but not yet kingdom that Jesus is establishing. In one sense, God's kingdom is here because God has come to earth, And even when Jesus left, when He ascended, He left us with the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in God's people and fills His kingdom people with kingdom power. But in another sense, the kingdom of God is not fully here because we're not yet fully with God, at least not in the way that we will be when we're living in God's immediate presence in the new heaven and the new earth. And that is why the poor-in-spirit disciples, the mourning disciples, the humble disciples, that is why Jesus can say that they're living well. Because of what's coming. Because of where the story is going. Church redemption will ultimately give way to perfect renewal and perfect restoration Not just spiritually, but physically and emotionally as well. God created everything perfectly, but then we've marred it with our sin, casting aside the blessings of a life lived in the full presence of God. So Jesus came that we might have life once again. He came that we might have life once again, giving his own life to redeem us and make that possible. And one day we will actually reclaim garden living, although this time it's going to be a pretty sweet city garden that Revelation speaks of as even more perfect than the perfect Garden of Eden. How that is, I don't know, but it sounds really good. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The four chapters of the most spectacular yet fully true story. And this is where it really gets good, and this is where we'll basically end. And accordingly, those who are poor in spirit are, in a sense, flourishing. Because, verse 3, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When that kingdom is consummated, they will get the full experience. They will get it in all of its glory and beauty and perfection. Those who mourn are flourishing because they will be comforted. Comforted by the Lord's presence and peace with them now, even as we go through this sermon, but fully and perfectly comforted later in the full presence of a God who presides over a new city with no more mourning. Those who are humble are flourishing because they will inherit the earth. There's a bit of, there's a bit of zip to that one, right? I mean, don't call it a comeback. Those, those folks who seem insignificant right now, they are very significant in God's eyes, and they are going to inherit the fully renewed and restored world. There's people on the margins getting stepped over and ignored right now who are going to be absolutely rocking it one day in the new heaven and the new earth. But these, these are words of grace, aren't they? Words that that promise some real comfort now, partly because of what's coming later. Jesus does does not turn a blind or or callous eye towards suffering people as if, you know, future kingdom benefits are all they really need. I mean, you know, just deal with it because the next part's going to be great. And you see him ministering very, very sacrificially to people, even in Matthew chapter 4. So he does that, but then he also says, check out what's coming. Look what's on its way. And man, that future stuff can really preach. It has so much power to encourage disciples and reframe the way that we see our world and what it means to live well. This is why we must teach church and present the full story. This this way of living, these, these ethics, that we're, we're going to hear about as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount. None of it makes sense without the story. Yes, of, of course, we, we tell people, you know, to quote the Apostle Paul, who was himself passing along information, we tell people that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve. We tell people that, but then what happened before that? And then, what's coming, what's coming after that? What's the story? It's so, so important. Teaching the whole counsel of God, the, the, the full biblical narrative is so crucial. Let me leave you with one question before we end. It's like, get practical, man. This is, what, what are we doing here? Here we go. Here's one thing, at least. Followers of Jesus Are you really living in this story, with this story in mind? Does your life make sense in light of this four-chapter story? And what evidence do you have for your answer? Does your life scream, or maybe depending on your personality, at least powerfully whisper, right? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Does your life speak that story? Does it make sense in light of those chapters? Your values and decisions and lifestyle make sense in light of this narrative. Are you willing to be different? Seeing as competing narratives in any time and in any space never match up perfectly with the biblical narrative. Or are you trying to mold the biblical narrative into the likeness of something it's more culturally or politically expedient. Does your life make sense in light of the story? Or are you trying to mold it into something else? And if you're here this morning, and frankly you identify more with the crowds, if you do not know what to think of this, and you're just listening and you're like, I don't know, at some point we had a Greek word, and I don't know, should he even mention that? That's, that's kind of presumptuous. I mean, if you're, if you're here and you're like, whoa, this, what is going on? My invitation to you would be, please stick with us. I hope that you will keep walking with us and asking questions as we make our way through this sermon. And one day I hope that you will embrace Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin. For the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus says, is at hand. Amen.